Welcome to Career Sessions with your hosts, Steph and Tamara. Proudly sponsored by Inspiring South Australia. In this series of Career Sessions, all of our guests hold doctorates in their chosen field, and we invite them to talk about their pathway from PhD candidate to present day. We ask them what they've learned, and we also ask them to give advice to people who might be thinking about a career in research when they've finished school or when they've finished their undergraduate degree. So today we're talking to Dr. Elizabeth Newnham, who graduated from the School of Nursing and Midwifery at University of South Australia in 2016, following the completion of her PhD. Her thesis, The Epidural Complex, A Critical Ethnography of Hospital Birth Culture, was published as a book under the title of Towards the, Towards the Humanization of Birth, A Study of Epidural Analgesia and Hospital Birth Culture in 2018. She is passionate about the role of midwives in birth, and this drives her research interests on cultural and political analysis of birthing practice, policy and ethics. She has held leadership roles in the Australian College of Midwives and is currently International Advisor on the Midwives Association of Ireland Committee. These days you will find her at Griffith University, though her role allows her to spend most of her time at home in South Australia. Her career path is as interesting as it is varied. Welcome, Liz. (laughs) Thank you for coming today. Thanks, Tamara. Um, So... Just so to set the scene, uh, we've already heard what your current role is, but we want to expand on that a little bit. So what are you doing right now? Uh, what does your current role entail? What does your day look like? So my day, I'm a, my role is a lecturer in midwifery at Griffith University, and my day can look very different depending on where we are in the semester or the sort of the plan for that day. So, for example, I've just finished a lot of student marking. <laughs> um, so that, that can sort of take over. I, it, it's interesting because it ebbs and flows as well. There's, there, there are these huge kind of pressure times in that academic role as, as far as I've experienced it. And then there are times when it just eases off a bit and you can sort of spend more time thinking about what you might want to do in the, in the future or work on some research. Um, projects uh, so yeah my day might might be it usually involves some kind of writing some kind of reading <laughs> some kind of talking to somebody and that might be teaching students or or trying to carry on with my own research so this time during COVID because you are based in Adelaide but teaching in Brisbane you've it's not really been a major difference for you in terms of, of having to a lot of students having to pivot from face to face no. So Griffith University already had um, committed to what they call their fifth campus, which is online campus. And there was, I mean, the, I'm teaching primarily in the postgraduate um, masters of primary maternity care, and that was all online. And that was the reason that I could be a bit flexible about that. Um, the undergraduate program still has face-to-face, and so there was more that had to be done in that in that space but there was still a lot online already it's difficult to teach somebody how to birth a child online i suppose yeah you do <laughs> there are certain things you need to be so in your family in in going back to the kind of the origins of your phd but were you first were you one of the first to go to university in your family or did your parents go to uni yeah both my parents went to university and my dad actually taught at a university 
and he was a lecturer in the philosophy of education. And my mother was a teacher and she was music and maths primarily. So she'd done a degree in, I think she did music. I'm not actually sure. I think it was music and then a dip ed. So that was sort of the way into teaching back then. Yes, they were both at university, but it wasn't necessarily an expectation mm. either. So did you, when you finished school, did you know what you wanted to do? Did you go to uni straight away? How did it all plan, map out for you there? Yeah, I had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> I, made, I um, matriculated with, languages and arts, English and classics. And I went to university, enrolled in a BA, um, ended up majoring in politics by default because they was just a really good lecturer there. <clears throat> and so I ended up taking more politics than anything else. Um, but I also did study some anthropology and feminist theory. And so it was a really good grounding actually. Then in my second year of that, I was in a relationship and fell pregnant with my first baby, gave birth for the first time and just went, oh, my God, that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I just need to get more of that and, like, how do I do that? So then I just jumped straight over, realised I had to do nursing first, did that, thought I would hate it, actually enjoyed it quite a lot, then did my midwifery education and then started working as a midwife. Then I went back, finished my BA in politics about 10 years later and went into the honours stream and did an honours thesis. So before you even started your PhD, you'd been at university forever. Yeah. <laughs> I've got three bachelor degrees, which is kind of over the top. <laughs> well, I suppose it prepares you for a life in academia. <laughs> so where was your Bachelor of Arts? Adelaide University. Yeah. And then um, you did your nursing at Adelaide as well? Then I did my nursing and meet at Flinders mm -hmm. and my PhD at UniSA. So I've actually okay. been at <laughs> all sampled. three. I'm an, alum, <laughs> an alumna of all three Adelaide universities. It just means three times the email is asking for money. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. So you went straight from school to uni. Yeah, and but I sort of took a deviation with motherhood and mm -hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and how I know, was I took a year off in between. You, oh, I, okay. I did have a year off in between the school leaving and the university beginning. Oh, okay, so what did you do in that year? Oh, just sort of travelled a little bit and not much actually. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that was Tried a good to get a do you job? Think, do you think it was a good choice to take a year out? Would you recommend your kids take a year out? Or I think I think it's where you're at mm -hmm. I you know I don't think there's a real answer to that no I had 16 years out. <laughs> yeah <laughs> see you, you know different folks different strokes for different folks. totally totally so at what point in the the moving between your bachelor's and motherhood and uh, did you decide you wanted to do a PhD that came after my honours mm -hmm. degree so I I did that over two years part-time with really excellent supervisors in the politics department, Carol Backey and Chris Beasley, who oh, yeah. are quite, um, you know, well-known feminist researchers. And they were just really great. And I did a Foucauldian genealogy of mid Australian midwifery and just loved, I just loved it. So then I went, right, 
I want to do more of this now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a bit like having the baby and going, how do I get more of that? I was like, how do I get to do more of this? Mm. Okay, what's the next step? Do a PhD. I didn't really know what I was getting into, mm-hmm. actually. And I think maybe that's the case <laughs> for some of us. You know, I guess some people know exactly that path. But for those of us that stray into it, semi-accidentally. Yeah, <laughs> it's only you find don't. yourself in a PhD <laughs> going, how did this happen? Yeah. <laughs> and I remember the day I, I emailed a professor at UniSA. Um, there was only one professor of midwifery actually in the state at that time. Adelaide Uni doesn't have um, hmm. midwifery. So I emailed her and said, I want to do a PhD, can I do it with you? And she said, yeah, I'm overseas, that sounds great, let's talk soon, and Mm -hmm. that was great. And I just remember the day that I walked in to meet her and and the woman that would be my co-supervisor, Jan Pincombe is the professor's name and Lois McKellar was my co-supervisor, and I just remember walking out after that meeting going, I've found my place. (laughs) Like this is... You know, just instantly I've comfortable with my them and my tribe, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and feeling so grateful in those first few weeks that I could actually spend time thinking and planning and writing, and yeah, it was incredible. So, did you get to pick your topic then? You had a lot of control. Yeah, yeah. I picked my topic. I picked my methodology. So in the emails, um, Jan said, oh, that sounds great. Maybe you could do it like this. So my, I wanted to look at epidural analgesia. And, um, oh, could you, yeah, for, the, for, for those the, of us who don't know, oh, and we totally do, <laughs> totally do. Could you just explain? Yeah, yeah. So epidural analgesia is a, is a common form of pain relief and it's, a, um, it's sort of like a, an anaesthetic type block. They use anaesthetic drugs and pain relieving drugs um, that go into the spinal fluid and it basically gives you a numbness um, from the waist down. And it's I think I've heard this described by friends who have had kids of just nothing. Yeah. Nothing below the waist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, I mean sometimes they don't work as well as that, but generally speaking. So it's and it's a much safer kind of analgesia than say general anesthetic. Mm-hmm for surgery. So it's quite good in that way. But my main problem with it was that I didn't think women really knew what they were signing up for. Yes. Yeah. So that was my issue. So so then yeah, I was suggested um Jan suggested a couple of things and I I sort of knew what I wanted to do and she was very relaxed about mm-hmm. letting me do that and just kind of holding the sides while <laughs> yeah, I made it's like a little bit of years. Yeah, exactly. Um, so were you able to get a scholarship for while you yes. studied? Yeah. I got I applied for a scholarship and was just over the moon when I got the letter. It was just before Christmas to in two thousand and nine, I think. And um yeah, it, I was just overjoyed about that opportunity. So grateful. Yeah, it is a relief. Mm. So your project uh, was exploring that experience for women in hospitals and you did an ethnography. So can you maybe explain, start, what is an ethnography and how did you, how did you do it? it? Yeah. An ethnography is a study of culture. So it comes from 
it sort of comes from anthropology, but their version of ethnography was much more about sort of living in these, you know, Immersed exotic experiences. Places. Yeah. yeah, and it was all a bit racist when you look back <laughs> at the early uh, anthropologists. Um, sort of, and they write these big books. But but then sociology started getting in on the scene, and they would very often look at urban situations and started looking at their own culture. So it's become something that you can really just take and use to look, really just explore any kind of culture. So for me, that was wanting to look at hospital culture and how how does it actually play out when you're in there? Because we know, and as a professional body you know as a professional group midwives we have this kind of speak that we speak and this philosophy that we hold on to but I think there's a difference between what we think we do or what we want to do and what we actually do and that's influenced by lots of different things and so that's sort of what I wanted to really unpack so how did I do it I I did observation on a la- on a labor ward so i sat in 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 a ward i didn't go into the rooms of the women mm-hmm. because i didn't want to knock on people's doors and say can i be part of this really yeah. personal experience yeah. mm-hmm. so that was more about being in the general area mm-hmm. but then i recruited women in the antenatal period and i well they're pregnant mm-hmm. um and i interviewed them twice and then I, I asked if I could attend their birth at the hospital mm-hmm. and six of those women said that I could do that and then I interviewed all of them postnatally as well. So it yeah. gave me a lot of um, data and then I also did document analysis. So with ethnography you often have this what they call triangulation of data. Mm-hmm. So you have your observation, sometimes interviews or um informal interviews often and analysis of documents or artefacts. Mm-hmm. So you get the story from a range of angles. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It just gives it more rigour. And so how long did it take you to do all of that? Did you have women that were all pregnant at the same time or, I mean, that's Yeah, bit... it is. And the thing about pregnant women is it does take you nearly a year really to, to see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did recruit women from... I have to remember now. It was after 20 weeks. I think it was the first interview was about, I think about 28 weeks gestation. So um, how long did it take me? I did six months in the labour ward, two-ish days a week, and then, yeah, the interviews with the women. It was probably a year of data collection mm-hmm. or all told. And were you asking women about their whole pregnancy birthing experience or were you really focused on their drug experience or I was focused on in the, the questions I asked when they were pregnant was about their thoughts about birth where oh, did they, they have think a birth plan and yeah and what their influences were and mm-hmm. how did they come to their decisions and it was really just so interesting to hear about yeah, there was one woman in particular who changed. Who, she wanted a cesarean section, elective cesarean section, when I met her in the first interview. And throughout the pregnancy, she sort of went on this journey and and sort of changed her mind mm. about all sorts of things. And I, 
it's just really interesting to hear about what women hear about birth and that, They've anyway, got advice coming at them from a thousand angles. Story, yeah. Were they yeah. first-time mothers? Not all of them. Okay, this that woman was, but some of them. No, I didn't. I didn't want to limit it to mm. to that. And some women's the when they spoke about their previous experiences, kind of added to the, my collection of yeah. of stories. Um, but I was interested in yeah their experience of labor and pain Mm -hmm. and pain relief so it was a sort of uh, the whole of it Mm -hmm. really and what was the most challenging part of that of of that of well the phd yeah the whole phd (laughs) but uh ethics was maybe an issue yeah ethics was an issue for me (laughs) (laughs) took me eight months to get ethics approval (laughs) and this is in you're in a time you've got limited time So um, I actually wrote, a pa- the first paper I wrote for my PhD was about the ethics. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> Well, as a how-to if you... <laughs> yeah, well, just mentioning some of the issues that I had so because... maybe we should sort of preface this with what ethics is in research mm. uh, and that, that ethics is a process that every researcher needs to go through when they're working with humans. In, mm. and, and they're a committee who are responsible for making sure that we as researchers don't... Um, cause any cause harm, harm or risk or burden. Yeah, yeah. And, and particularly when populations are vulnerable, which pre- well, most populations are vulnerable in some ways, pregnant mm-hmm. women are particularly vulnerable as well. Yeah. So that's... So yes. they're there for a good reason, but, yes, oh, my God, eight reason. months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the problem with ethics committees, and this is one of the things I put in that paper, is that they're really, I mean, they come out of the... The sort of Nuremberg trials mm. and the the unethical research that happened during the Second World War, and then that it sort of builds on from there. So it's absolutely fabulous that they are there. They don't tend to understand qualitative research, mm-hmm. or at least the the way that often you have to fill out the form. It lends itself to a more quantitative medical, type of yeah, yeah. medical Yeah, you're not research. drawing blood, you're not taking yeah. organs. How do you explain to someone the burden that you might or the stress yes. you might be putting them under when you have to describe yeah. a conversation you haven't had yet? Exactly. And because ethnography is very explorative, you can't... You don't know exactly what you you're going to You don't know find. exactly <laughs> what you're going to And it, interestingly, they asked me to do two things which I thought were less ethical actually in practice which was the women weren't supposed to know that it was a they wanted they asked me to change my information sheets to say that the study was about pain relief in general rather Mm -hmm. than just epidural because they thought it would be biased and which which again shows a misunderstanding of qualitative research because mm. you come into it with a bias and you're very open about that, which is very different to quantitative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other thing they asked me to do, get consent from the people on the ward, on the like, like the clinicians mm. could sign an opt-out form. How rather does that than, work in practice? So I, I sort of told everybody that, I could and had a mm. few meetings and introduced myself to the staff and said, I'm here, I'm doing research, this is what it, my study is about, I'm going to be watching and observing and taking notes and if anybody doesn't want to be part of it, then you can opt out. And, mm-hmm. and there are these forms that I had, nobody signed one, of course, okay. because 
I don't know. I thought that was an interesting. I'm not sure how it would even work. Well, yeah, yeah. Exactly. a sticker saying, don't look at me. I they're know. Like a, they're like the pixelated person in the picture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. So it's interesting. I mean, and that's the problem again with thinking that everyone has to sign a consent to opt in though. Mm. It, you can't really do that with ethnography either. Mm. So I can't actually remember <laughs> now what my plan had been, but it wasn't that. <laughs> yeah. Well. yeah. As I imagine that in a busy, especially when it was very busy, if somebody had said, I don't want to be observed, then you'd be like, I have to like close your eyes when they walk past or something. Yeah. Like, You're interacting <laughs> with people. Yeah. Yeah. I can't have that whole interaction <laughs> because that person's in it. Yeah. That would just have not worked at all. Yeah. And the thing is, the people aren't named. Hmm. There's no, absolutely no possibility of identification at that level. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, yeah. I mean, it's not, <laughs> not unethical. Ethics committees will do what they change, do. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you persist you persisted in the face of challenge by writing yes. a paper about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you used your tongue wisely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so the flip side of challenges, what was the most exciting thing about your PhD? The most exciting thing was grappling with the analysis. No, the, that wasn't the exciting thing. The, the analysis was hard. And I spent a good year or so just not really sure exactly how... You're going to pull all this together. (laughs) Yeah. And then I remember this one moment, I was actually drawing it all. I was sort of doing these mind mappy things and circles and links and this leads to that. And and it suddenly it all fit together and it was like... A eureka. It really (laughs) was. I mean, it wasn't as important as discovering whatever it was gold yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but More um it was just such a good feeling mm. to to have felt like it, it had something had come out of that that I'd thought of myself mm. and you know yeah it was amazing feeling. so what came out of your project um in terms of did it did it affect policy? Did it affect um, the the experience of women in hospitals at, at, for for childbirth? Kind of. So what happened after that? I um, was able to. I actually approached the perinatal guidelines. So South Australia has a statewide um, guidelines for obstetric and midwifery practice. So I did approach them. And um, with a few concerns about how uh, analgesia was presented, I guess, there was no guideline at all. So we, um, that was put, we wrote a guideline basically and I was the lead author on the epidural section. It was run by an anaesthetist. She took took the whole sort of thing. But it it included lots of um, different forms of analgesia and also... At the beginning of the guideline, we put um, a, a bit of a, a prologue about things that supported physiological birth and other that that other things need to be considered as well. And those guidelines are still in place. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that's awesome. quite an outcome. <laughs> that's a really that's an amazing outcome for a PhD. <laughs> yeah, most people have described this this learning journey of yours as I've affected policy. <laughs> so well done you. Thank you. Um, so based on your experience as a student and as a now a supervisor of students, how would you describe the life of a PhD student? I thought it was wonderful. 
And I would recommend anybody who is thinking of doing a PhD to do one because it's very flexible. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I guess for some people that doesn't work so well. Um, but for me, it what it did. Um, it's creative. It is inspiring. I mean, the the downside is the money's rubbish. <laughs> so <laughs> I get used to living on two minute noodles. <laughs> so yeah, I went from a sort of you know, well, a clinical position in a permanent clinical position in the hospital where I was earning pretty good money, um, to a PhD scholarship. So that yeah. was <laughs> that was quite disappointing. <laughs> but um. You know, I guess it's what drives you as well. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. And I would just say, um, you know, follow your interests in that in that way if anyone's thinking of doing it. Would you do it again? Yeah. Yeah? Absolutely. That was a very quick yes. <laughs> and you're not that far out, so the trauma has not quite faded. <laughs> no. I mean, it is a... It changes you as a person for mm -hmm. sure. Like it's a it's a life changing thing, and it's really hard. Mm -hmm. Like I, you know, it is a it is a a hard thing mm -hmm. to do. Rewarding. But life is about hard things, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So your decision to go from a clinical kind of role into a PhD, obviously, that was a um, very helpful to you because you're site of data collection was in a clinical setting um how what would that have looked like if you didn't have that clinical background? could you have done that project without your clinical background yeah that's an interesting question actually i mean you can mm. and certainly ethnographers go into situations mm. where they don't and there's a whole kind of spectrum of where you sit as an insider slash outsider yeah, whether some it's emic or communities can be a bit insular yeah and mm. so it definitely helped because i had an in because mm. i knew well i knew some of the people actually and i i knew the language so when they were speaking i could understand what was being said and you know the other side of that is separating yourself out from mm. the clinician as the researcher and then having to step back and not say things to women, for example, when I was observing their labour and not being involved and not yeah. being supportive. <laughs> in fact, I remember one woman, I was basically sitting in the corner for her whole labour. I gave eye contact just every now and again and said a couple of things as mm -hmm. I came in and out of the room just so I wasn't completely. Yeah, just a weird person hanging in the background. <laughs> and she said, in, I mean, we, you know, we'd met twice for the interviews and, and I remember her saying in her postnatal interview, I'm so glad you were there. <laughs> it, was, it was, you know, you were so supportive. <laughs> really okay. do anything. <laughs> but that was, that was actually hard and that's, yeah, it's sort of, if anyone wants to do an ethnography, they will come into that literature very quickly about where you sit on that spectrum as an mm. insider or an outsider. Mm. And there are pros and cons to both. Totally. I mean, being able to understand the language of what's going on in front of you and not have to go and ask and do quick inter informal interviews to understand just an interaction that's just occurred must mm. be a bonus. Yeah. yeah. For everybody, cause if, if, especially for the clinicians as well, yeah. going, oh, she's asking another one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you came into your PhD already with skills. Um, yes. What were the sort of skills that you gained in your PhD that you now use in your current work? Writing. 
I really learned how to write doing my PhD mm. and um, probably thinking. That sounds – we don't really talk about thinking But anymore. it's a special kind of thinking. <laughs> yeah, it's a special kind of thinking. <laughs> it takes you to another sort of level of, I don't know, critical thinking. And so what was your first role after you finished your PhD and, and what roles have led you to where you are today? My first role after – well, I, I took a position as a lecturer in midwifery at, at, right at the end of my PhD. So mm. there was a position going at UniSA, which I applied for and was successful in that. So, And that was partly because I'd been there doing my PhD, mm. doing they some casual teaching and stuff. So after that, I took a position in Ireland, actually in Trinity College, Dublin. And that was partly because I just wanted to... Do more, I suppose. I just wanted to see what else was there. Um, In the field or outside of Australia? outside of Australia. Mm. And I was just feeling a bit restless, I think, Mm. and a couple of other things were going on, (laughs) which I won't go into, but um, Mm. it was just the best opportunity. And that definitely came directly from having done a PhD and having published work from it and... And then taking the job there. Mm-hmm. And so were there any, many cultural differences working in Ireland compared to here, I suppose, both in the field of midwifery but also in academia? Yes. There were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I How suspect, got? <laughs> I suspect my lovely colleagues over there, I probably just put my foot in my mouth all the time <laughs> without actually knowing it. But nobody really ever said anything. <laughs> But I no, I made some wonderful sort of friendships and um, networks over there, and learnt a lot. Mm-hmm. Partly by having that other, you know, having that other experience, and mm-hmm. and there definitely was cultural differences, um, which you know probably can't go into now because it's huge. But and, but also the opportunity to to teach at that beautiful university. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Just, that just would just be amazing. It was amazing, yeah. Was your PhD by publication or a thesis? No, it was a thesis. Yeah. I just published, I did publish a few papers, I think maybe three while I was going mm-hmm. and then I just put them in as extras but yeah. they weren't, it was a complete thesis. Um, and where does your thesis sit these days? It used to hold my monitor up. <laughs> Um, on my desk. A truly privileged space. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I found something slightly taller, so it's uh, just on the bookshelf. <laughs> Should have written more words. <laughs> um, so I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit, but what is a PhD to you then? What is a PhD to me? Can I give you a hint? Yes. <laughs> Please. <laughs> some people have called it a training ground. Uh, some people have called it a, a door opener. Oh, I see. Yes. Yes. I, saw, I did see that question. It definitely, I mean, it, it, yeah, I, I mean, technically it is a research training program, isn't it? So it teaches you how to do research. But I think it's definitely a, it's like a springboard or mm. something. Like it launches you into a whole other place and it gives you 
I guess coming from a position of being a midwife and being a clinician um, and trying to change things on an individual level, having that option, having that, being able to do research and publish papers Mm. and speak at international conferences and network globally, I think gives, it just gives you more of a voice and Uh, and it's a political act. You have reach now. For me. (laughs) (laughs) It's about, you know, um, making change. Mm -hmm. And so do you think um, there's ways that, research can be better promoted in in the world for, to, so that people can value more the work that we do and less uh, anti kind of knowledge. Intellectualism. Intellect, yeah, yeah, um, or at least that, you know, research doesn't stay in theses and never makes it to the out to the world. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think, I mean, that anti-intellectualism stuff really worries me a lot and um I don't know, it's probably always been there, you know, and there's certainly lots of different kinds of knowledges. Knowledge doesn't have to be only produced in universities. Mm. I actually worry about what happens, what's happening in the university sector and the kind of contraction down Mm. to really small, not small, but really focused outcomes-based sort of, you know, you have to... uh, Translation is great, but knowledge generation is still important. Like how do we know that something that someone's working on in some back room that doesn't really have Mm. a product at the end of it that we know of isn't going to be really useful down the track? Some foundation for something else. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I feel like we've lost any kind of value of that, Mm. of and I know that money's an issue and all of that stuff, but I, it just makes me feel a bit flat. But mm. so I don't really know the answer to that. No, I know. Mm. <laughs> oh, we only ask those simple <laughs> yeah. questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I think thought- <laughs> I really do think that universities should be publicly funded. Mm. And I think this whole COVID thing has just shown the vulnerability of a institutions based on 70% casual workforce Mm -hmm. is ludicrous Mm -hmm. and how they expect us all to keep going. Yeah. I know universities seem timeless and then something like this happens and it's like we're so close to just falling over. Yeah, yeah. the the foundations are very, very, very shaky. (laughs) Um, So bearing that in mind, um, for people who are contemplating a PhD and perhaps a future career in academia and given the numbers of people who start and who complete PhDs, do you recommend people do PhDs? Not as a box to be ticked, mm-hmm. but I think if you have got a fire in your belly about something and you are passionate about something, um, and that's what I would say. I would say follow your interests. Don't don't be sort of tempted to do it a different way. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you're spending an awful lot of your life writing about it, reading about it, talking to people about it. That it might got set to, the tone for your future career yeah, as well. Yeah, and you've got to really love it Yeah, or be very passionate about it or, or, or it can't be just something that you just pick up for the end result. Yeah. I don't, I mean, probably people do that, but it might not be as rewarding. Mm-hmm. 
So what advice would you have for people who uh, might be contemplating their undergraduate course, like still at the beginning, you know, those 17-year-olds who are being asked to <laughs> decide what to do with the rest of their lives? Mm-hmm. Um, what's what, your advice to them? What my advice to them would be don't stress. That, like people meander like I did and um, you might not know exactly what you want to do with the rest of your life at 17. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly. I do. Oh, no. <laughs> And so, again, I would just say follow your interests. Do the things that keep you happy and fulfilled and, and wanting to do more rather than, you know, things that you think you ought to be doing or that other people think you ought to be doing. Oh, and so this question is about the myths that you hear about academia and about the PhD and about being the doctor. What is one of those myths that you would like to uh, just put a sit- pin in? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Squish it. It's not true, or or maybe it's a little bit true, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> um, this one might have been said already, actually, but that that response that people have of "Oh, you're not a real doctor." Because, <laughs> um, I find myself saying that as a knee jerk when you go, yeah. "Oh, you know, it's Doctor Stephanie Champion." And they're like, "Oh, a doctor." I'm like, I'm "Not a real doctor." Yeah. Like, because actually, the t- the title doctor for a PhD existed first, is the real and the one. medicos <laughs> took over the title. <laughs> so um, probably that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're not a real doctor. Yeah, I am. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you no ever had an opportunity to reflect on your PhD before? Not in this kind of way. Mm-hmm. Probably with other, with colleagues and stuff. You know, like mm-hmm. we've probably yeah. Un- I've done a bit of reflecting over the years. <laughs> we, we, we did. Reflecting. Reflecting or venting. <laughs> Probably both. Um, the howling yeah, owl, big really. shout out. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's been a really good opportunity actually um, because, it, yeah, it can get, I think the path that happens after the PhD can be also hard to navigate. Mm. Yes. That may be the, the topic don't... of our next um, yeah. podcast series. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get you back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for um, your time and your generosity and not getting a speeding ticket on the way from the time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tamara. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you. The very last thing that we should end with is a huge thank you to all of the people who came and gave their time to be interviewed for this um, podcast series. It's, very generous. It was very generous of them and it was so fascinating. And uh, after every interview, I felt so inspired <laughs> to be a researcher and, and to use my PhD. So it was a very eye-opening experience and a, um, a, a really interesting experience. Yes, and we're really very grateful to yeah. every single one of them. But we're also a Especially grateful to Dr. Sharon Pittman for yeah, telling us, gave us the, about the grant. <laughs> the inside story about the grant. Yes. yes. She gave us the inside story about the grant that we applied for and we got, which supported um, the production of this podcast. So thank you to Inspiring South Australia and to Sharon uh, for your very generous um, support of our podcast. Thanks for listening to Career Sessions with Dr. Stephanie Champion and Dr. Tamara Agnew. If you like the show and want to know more, check out www.careersessions.com where you can send us your suggestions for future series and subscribe so you know when a new episode is posted. If you love it, tell all your friends 
and please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks to our sponsor, Inspiring South Australia, for their generous support, and to our producer, Rory, at Podbooth. Join us next time when we talk careers with another leader in the field.